Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, but you look at any human right that we enjoy now, and that's being demanded off the state rather than freely given. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 76 with Nick Hayes. Nick is an illustrator by trade, but he now adds activist and author to his titles. He wrote The Book of Trespass, which details how we, the public, have been excluded from nature through our history. Living on a canal boat and with a passion for folk music and a simpler life more connected to the earth, Nick is incredibly passionate about public access to the countryside and our right to roam, actively encouraging people to trespass in a responsible manner. In this potentially controversial and divisive episode, Nick explains what his rebellion involves, how he wants all of us to be able to better connect with nature, and how it's the power of the people which will change government policy. An ardent believer in his cause, Nick is punchy, articulate, and opens up the debate around our right to roam. Before we begin, I'd like to point you towards the Martin Moran Foundation, our charitable partner. They're an incredible organisation that enable people to get out in the hills, the mountains, and to find and live a life of adventure. It's an initiative very close to my heart, and I'd be incredibly grateful to those of you who are able to support their work. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us an honest review and a rating on iTunes, if that's where you're listening. These reviews help us with visibility, which in turn brings more people into the adventure fold. Finally, the podcast is produced alongside Sidetrack Magazine, our spiritual sister publication. For a written and photographic adventure fix to go alongside your auditory stories, head to sidetrack.com. Okay. Over to Nick Hayes. I guess the logical place to start is, can you just introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Have you perceived that? What that means to you? Yeah, my, my name's Nick Hayes. Uh, I'm the author of the book of Trespass, uh, but truth be told, I've, I've never really been a writer. I'm an illustrator uh, by trade. That's how I get my money. And I just just wrote this non-fiction book uh, about the history of uh, how the public were excluded from our nature, as uh, the book likes to see it. Um, and, um, you know, and, and maybe just sort of shining a light on some of the lesser known uh, rebellions or sort of um, actions that uh, have, have been staged to, to, to sort of get our access to nature back. And actually, how those have stalled over the years, and potentially how this one might work. So, um, what's your background? Are you academic or? Yeah, I was, but I mean, I went to university, uh, studied English, uh, which was no good for uh, like a career in illustration. But uh, you know, went into um, 
uh, marketing for charities kind of thing for a bit, worked for Age Concern, worked for the National Council for Palliative Care, which I'd never heard of before, but which was a really cool job. Basically, you know, how to look after people that are dying and, uh, you know, how basically how vital that is. And I was really just by working for it, just only a year, just starting out after university, I really realized how uh, important, uh, you know, end of life care is basically, but that's got nothing to do (laughs) with what I ended up doing other than a sense of empathy for the people that are marginalized in our culture, I suppose, like, uh, you know, there are all sorts of different sectors of people that don't get a voice uh, that don't get in with terms to access to nature, don't get the same kind of opportunities. Um, but I guess at the age of 22, yeah, I also realised that uh, like dying is just a taboo in our culture. And as a result of that, we just do our best to just sort of sweep it under the carpet. Um, and that it really doesn't need to be that way. So they were a great organisation. And then I had an idea for a graphic novel. I just... Um, you know, I'd always kept up illustrating and stuff, but I saw it's probably quite a famous picture now, basically a picture of uh, uh, albatross uh, that was dead, but its stomach had been kind of blown open by the amount of plastic that it had swallowed. Um, and so it was just an image of a, kind of the decaying carcass of an albatross uh, and just like this sort of confetti of uh, bottle tops and uh, bits of broken plastic that were in its belly um and that just linked in my head to uh, Samuel Coleridge's uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner so I wrote a, a, a new version of that that was kind of set not in a sort of gothic horror but uh, a very modern horror of what are called like these uh Pacific gyres, which are basically great big plug holes where the ocean currents kind of converge. And because of that, they lose their energy and they just dump whatever they're carrying, which in the modern age is just a shit ton of plastic. So I wrote a graphic novel and uh, that did all right. So um, I kind of took that as an opportunity to jump out of the office window (laughs) and, uh, and get as far away as I could from strip lighting and gray carpets. Uh, and ended up becoming an illustrator, did a few more graphic novels, and then wrote this non-fiction book. And so your full-time work now is predominantly illustration? Yeah, like book covers, mag- you know, it's a couple of illustrations to illustrate magazines. Uh, just completed a uh, uh, sort of label for a whiskey brand, which means I get, I think, six bottles of whiskey uh, of some, you know, the kind of whiskey I'd never, uh, I'd never pick up at a well. Kind of whiskey you can't even get in a supermarket, you know, real high end stuff. So um, you label that under perks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you live on a narrowboat, so you definitely escape the strip lighting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually it's actually a wide beam. It's a little bit more space uh, than a narrowboat. I beg your pardon, but. Uh, like it basically means I'm better off on the river, which is wider. On the canals, we like people that uh, cruise wide beams are, are, are sort of justifiably hated. I think we're like the sort of uh, Range Rovers on a country road kind of thing. But it's always always my mission. I've just ended up basically back where I grew up in uh, West Berkshire on the Thames, and I used to come down this stretch of river to swim and to camp and uh, uh, kayak. 
Uh, and now I can just, uh, you know, open the window and jump out, basically. It's really nice. I was going to say, I mean, it's a pretty big tangent, I suppose, from what we're here to talk about, although we haven't got an agenda. What's life like on a wide beam barge? Well, currently my water pump is broken. So this morning at 6am, I kayaked half a mile to uh, go and fill up a canister of uh, water from the lock tap. And there's loads of that kind of bollocks. There's loads of, uh, you know, stuff's always, it, it, it's sort of not as simple as uh, turning on the electric at home and having everything sorted. Um, but people that walk by uh, the barge, they, they often forget, a bit like when you're at a festival and you think that the people inside the tents can't hear you because a tent is like a, I don't know, like a thing. Uh, and you forget that its walls are, you know, a millimetre thick. Um, usually, like one of the couple, well, usually the woman will say, oh, how romantic uh, or how beautiful, or how lovely. And then the bloke who kind of wants to see it sound a bit more pragmatic and like he's thought about the ramifications always goes like, ah, oh, yeah, but the winters are really hard. Um, and it's not, it's just snug. As long as you've got a big, you know, you've got a fat more so stove or something, then uh, you whack the coal on. And it's basically like living in a little fox set or like, a, you know, in the winter we feel like badgers basically like uh, it's uh it's just really nice and it's um it's a really open community you know like uh there's kind of if you haven't got a spanner there's someone down the road that does um lots of fires lots of um kind of irish music bizarrely i don't know how i've like it's the kind of stuff that i like to play um so lots of sitting around fires you know with irish whistles and drums and uh guitars and bazookis and banjos and stuff and uh uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's pretty, it's like real life romantic, like it's like a book, basically. It's really nice. Well, that's a lovely segue in a way. Um, right at the start, you said, um, you know, the book's obviously about trespass and um, regaining access to what we've lost. I think maybe a good place to start going down that path is to talk about how what we've lost and how we lost it. Absolutely. It would, basically, it wasn't that we ever lost the land that we owned. Like uh, even in Anglo-Saxon times, there was a laird or a thane uh, that owned the land. It's just when William the Conqueror came over, he kind of imported this uh, new notion that uh, private ownership of land should mean the exclusion of all other people that kind of lived on it or around it or kind of um, used its resources sustainably uh, to subsist autonomously you know to look after their own like the land was our winter fuel allowance it was our welfare state it was our food uh without any of the shame and the stigma of uh you know that the sort of daily mail will project onto uh using welfare kind of thing um but when the fences um basically and there were always fences there were always walls but they were to keep the livestock in uh, and you were allowed to, um, you know, come and go. And th this old sort of philosophy of commoning is is so vital to today's, you know, it, it sounds modern. It sounds like the answer uh, to our sort of current ecological crisis, which is basically you don't get your rights to the land unless you exercise your responsibility to it. So, you know, this, this commoning uh, was about like actively caring for the land and making sure 
the, the resources you were using uh, were sustainable. As you know, the, the central philosophy of it all is you don't own the land and you don't own the rights to the land. You're just borrowing them off your children. Uh, you know, everything has to be there for uh, the future. And that's not like sort of hippie ideology. That's because people were literally, you know, they had their local woodland. And if their kids were going to stay warm, then you better coppice the hazel in such a way that it will grow back so that your children can use it too. Um, private property came along, uh, excluded, um, you know, just basically everyone that didn't have the title deeds to the land. Uh chucked millions of English people out onto the roads uh, to, you know, sort of to look for work. Uh, But also, crucially, it it turned people into wage slaves. It was no longer could you just spend your day taking your cow to pasture, uh, collecting the honey from the bees, like uh, tilling uh, your sort of plot of land, that, uh, like an allotment that you share with other people. Uh, All of a sudden, you were you know, uh, at the whim of whichever boss was deciding to pay you as little as possible kind of thing. Um, and and as effectively, that, that was right from 1066 up to the late 1800s, various bouts of what's called enclosure, which is like excluding people from, uh, you know, the Commonwealth uh, and the land that they once had rights to. Uh, and now... These days, it's become so ingrained in our psyche that uh, that we kind of swallow this kind of the, the law basically uh, of access in England uh, doesn't take into account ideas of scale or context. So, uh, if I go for a walk in twelve thousand acres of deciduous woodland, the law sees that as the same thing as me jumping over the fence of someone's suburban backyard. Uh, and setting up camp in their, you know, in their rockery pool kind of thing. Whereas patently, uh, the two things are, are, are completely different. Uh, and, and I guess with the campaign, less so in the book, but with the campaign that we're running alongside uh, the book, we're, we're basically saying the public have a pretty much a medical need uh, to access nature that like the science is in. We've We've proven uh, how nature can uh, benefit our mental health, our physical health, and even proven through science, our spiritual health. You know, it can make us kinder. It can make us less lonely. It can offset, you know, loneliness is this sort of unspoken uh, epidemic that's kind of flooding through England kind of thing. Um, But the camaraderie, the collectiveness uh, of, say, wild swimming or those kind of things, they, they really do combat um uh loneliness or or you know the the sort of medical ailments that we might have and also there's an argument from the treasury even of england like we are spending according to nhs forest uh who are kind of uh, an offshoot of the nhs that are kind of promoting things like green prescriptions or basically people getting out into nature for their own health we're spending 8.2 billion pounds a year on the results of our sedentary lifestyles. And that's anything from stress, anxiety, depression, right through to like obesity and, uh, you know, pulmonary heart disease and those kind of things. If you add up the cost of uh, us having to repair people after the damage, it's £8.2 billion a year. Uh, So 
bizarrely like uh, access to nature or just improving people's access to nature uh, has uh, huge financial implications as well. And if we're talking about alleviating the pressure on the NHS, which has sort of been the slogan uh, of the last year of COVID and whatnot, like the NHS has been under pressure uh, since its conception because it was never designed uh, to to work by itself. It was always designed to to come in for the emergencies, you know, to help people who uh, who, who need medical intervention. As it was initially conceived uh, after the Second World War, it was it was sort of seen in parallel with the right to roam. This was another, you know, with the welfare state, with pensions and, uh, you know, sort of uh, healthcare free at the point of uh, access. The right to roam was always supposed to be the way that people could manage their own healthcare without, like, without having to sort of lean on the NHS. And the NHS would be there to basically catch you if you fell. The way it's gone the idea you know that was the idea of a right to roam was blocked by the house of lords in uh, uh, the late 1940s the nhs has to provide for everything it has to provide for all of our not just you know emergency intervention but like to sustain people's health as well there's so much out there in you know what what we call the natural health service um, all we need is uh, to not be criminalised for uh, for going out there and, and getting our health. Bloody hell. <laughs> I didn't know most of that. I consider myself to be fairly well read on it all, and I didn't know most of that. It's it it's been buried uh, like no one no one teaches enclosure. Uh, in schools, no one uh, in, in very much the same way that uh, at school we were all taught that England emancipated the slaves, William Wilberforce, that kind of thing, uh, and no one really spent any time teaching us about the three hundred years that we uh, enslaved free West Africans and transported them to uh, the Caribbean. Uh, to make money for an elite few landowners in England that had just sort of expanded their profiteering into, um, you know, colonialism. In the same way, no one, no one teaches us that actually uh, the land or or the people that were colonising other lands actually practised that colonisation on England, on the working class people of England, hundreds of years before they uh, took it abroad. Um, so we're born into a world where we, we've sort of forgotten the sense that we do have rights uh, to nature. Uh, and we also have the right to protect it as well, uh, to protect it from an, another component of uh, private property, which is called jus abutendi, which is if you own the land, you own everything on it and you own the right to destroy it. Uh, so, you know, HS2 protesters are being arrested because they're trespassing. Uh, but the, you know, the landowners, uh, who, you know, who have been bought off by the government are are well within their rights to destroy uh, ancient woodland. Um, the law of property has basically gone too far. <laughs> it's taking the piss. So what do we have access to? 
Well, we've got uh, ev- everyone uses the argument that you've got plenty of uh, rights of way. You've got, uh, you know, we've got 117,000 uh, miles of right of way in England. Um, and, and that is no one's arguing the fact that those rights of way are a valuable way into um, uh, observing nature, you know. The problem is that accounts for uh, 0.3% of the land mass in England. Chuck another 8% onto that, which was uh, given to us by the Countryside and Rights of Way Act in uh, 2000, basically opening up areas of down, uh, downland and upland, moorland, mountain. Um, but all of those places, like the vast majority of that 8% of land that we are allowed the right to roam over, uh, are just bloody miles away from uh, urban populations or from where lots and lots of people live. Um, so our campaign at righttoroam.org.uk is seeking to open up rivers, greenbelt and woodlands so that people uh, can just have greater access to nature in the way that their health will benefit from it, which is regularly. Um, you know, n- nature can't be relegated to the occasional weekend break or week away for basically middle-class families that can afford it. Uh, It has to be part of people's day-to-day lives. And the thing is, those rights of way, like all we're really allowed to do in England is walk in a straight line. Uh, On the 8% that we have right to roam over, um, we're allowed to uh, explore and to, you know, to sort of wander freely. Um, but swimming is still against the law. Uh, kayaking, paddleboarding, both of which have seen an in, you know an in, incredible increase in their membership and sales uh, over lockdown. We're only allowed access to three percent of our rivers, uh, and very very few of the kind of uh, two thousand reservoirs in England. We're just not allowed access to them. If that was opened up, then people would have what's called easy access, which is defined as within 500 meters, like somewhere that you can walk to without having to sort of, uh, you know, redesign your day. Uh, you can just sneak in uh, a, a swim. There, there need to be so many more activities that people have the opportunity to do. Uh, and actually, wild camping has to be one of those as well, because uh, that that is possibly the one that uh, a is the most vilified in the press. This idea that people will devastate the land if they uh, if they camp on it, um, but also it's just very recently been criminalised by a conservative government that are really trying to eliminate a way of life of the travelling community, uh, but to sidestep accusations of uh, you know violating the travellers' human rights. They've just simply broadened the definition of this new crime and policing bill uh, to include anyone that turns up uh, and stays overnight on land if they appear on that place with one or more vehicles kind of thing. So wild camping is is, is set to be criminalised. Yeah, that was something I really wanted to talk about because, and I've got sort of four or five questions in one here, but they're all related, is the difference between England and Scotland and obviously the British Isles in general but also the difference between civil trespass and criminal trespass um, and how all of this is related and the difference in what we are and aren't allowed to do. Well, Scotland, um, only in 2003 did Scotland declare a right to roam over uh, all of its land and water. And 
just like every other right to roam legislation across Europe in Norway, Sweden, Latvia, Estonia, um, you are allowed your right to roam, A, only if you exercise your responsibilities to it, which is primarily to the ecology of the landscape, but secondarily to the to the landowner and the people that work the land, you know, show respect to the work that is going on on, on these places. Um, but also, uh, you know, with very, very sensible exceptions, like number one, uh, the right to privacy and, uh, you know, to not have your back garden invaded by uh, a, a wild camper. Um, th that is enshrined in every single um, legislation of right to roam across Europe. Um, and so it should be because people's privacy is a human right. Uh, and the idea that there would be uh, countries in Europe uh, whose law actively encourages people to uh, camp in someone's private garden is actually just a bit bonkers. But it is—it's an orthodoxy. It's a—it's a—it's a sense that people have that that is what right to roam would mean. But there's no lover of nature uh, that, um, <laughs> that is particularly bothered about exploring someone else's backyard. Because there's just not, it's just not as beautiful as the wild open spaces that England is full of. But yeah, so Scotland allows you to kayak and swim and paddleboard uh, in the locks, in the rivers. Uh, and, and crucially, what that does is sort of remove this kind of enmity that exists between, in England, the current sort of rulers of the river are, are the fishermen. Um, you know, what, what happens is they pay rent to a fishing club who then in turn pay rent to the landowner and the banks of our rivers and, you know, the actual water bodies of our rivers are effectively the exclusive domain of people uh, who have decided to pay to fish them. Up in Scotland, they've just learned to share because the law says that, uh, you know, everyone has a right uh, to exercise and to um explore nature because it's so valuable to our mental and physical health so you are allowed to uh camp in scotland but only if you follow uh you know the very detailed uh scottish outdoor access code which which just strips the english countryside code uh it makes it look woefully uh bare and barren and and basically useless uh, not to mention the fact that when we FOI'd the government to see how much they'd actually been spending on promoting the countryside code, in the last 14 years, they've spent £2,000 a year uh, getting the message of how to treat the countryside well. Uh, and £2,000 a year is basically nothing. Uh, you know, that's that might, I don't know, like you can print some pamphlets for that, but you can't you can't distribute them. And what we're saying is that, that there should be no right of access to England without a sustained and um, comprehensive campaign to educate people uh, how to um, how to behave in the countryside. Because some some parts are very delicate ecologies; the other parts are just sort of obvious respect for you know, as if you might be in someone's home. Um, and the public get blamed for it. You know, the public are all vandals. The public, uh, you know, are this and that. But actually, the public just haven't, A, we haven't had, 
the experience in nature to sort of learn these things for ourselves and b you know in the 70s the countryside code was taught at school i was never taught the countryside code when i was growing up in the you know sort of 80s and 90s kind of thing um so why are we blaming people for not being educated we should blame the education system uh, for not educating people yeah i mean it's hard to argue with so to play <laughs> devil's advocate deliberately and be challenging um you know you i'm guessing you've spent a lot of time in scotland i've spent a lot of time in scotland camping wandering about it doesn't work perfectly does it no like Loch Lomond or Loch Lomond. I always say Loch Lomond, like it's uh, uh, like <laughs> not in the British Isles, basically. Uh, yeah, there's um, the, Loch Lomond is a, is an example of where uh, there's been lots of litter. Um, you know, like uh, uh, there's various sort of social pressures that are you, the context of that, specifically in Loch Lomond. Um, but crucially. Uh, the Scottish Outdoor Access Code is something, and the Scottish Right to Roam, is something that gets reviewed every five years. So what we're talking about is um, just simply opening up a dialogue between the, the people that have vested interests in lands. That includes the landowners, that includes the land workers, but it also includes the locals and basically the sort of uh, the tourism, uh, you know, the, the people that aren't local to that area that come in order to walk or to swim. And, um, you know, all of these things need reviewing constantly. And the way that the Scottish Outdoor Access Code is set up, it's set up so that those stakeholders can come together and uh, voice their complaints and voice their concerns. Um, and, and then, you know, the code will respond to it kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm certainly not saying that opening up uh, Right to Roam would just uh, solve, uh, you know, our mental health issues, our physical health issues, and, say, the litter problem or, you know, over lockdown, the, the litter that was left up in the Peak District or whatever was appalling. But actually, no, not one of the newspaper articles, A, basically, they were just piles of barbecues, tinnies, and nitrous oxide gas, which to anyone uh, under the age of 50 just means basically people that were going raving uh, and all the clubs were shut. Uh, so they just went to the only venue that was available to them, which was somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. Because we've been raised outside of a cyclical uh, waste culture, you know, where we're not used to recycling and there's actually very few facilities uh, that cater for, you know, like returning your bottles or returning your cans to the supermarkets. We live in a culture where uh, in the city, some poor sod is just going to be on basic, uh, you know, lowest rate pay. Uh, we'll just come along and sweep up everyone's mess. I used to live in Old Street. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the roads were just covered in broken glass, nitrous oxide canisters, uh, you know, uh, kebab wrappers, burger boxes, all of that kind of thing. And some someone else would just come and like heave the whole lot into uh, bin liners. So the the problem with litter is that it's not just about uh, you know a, a couple of people that don't give a damn. It's it's a systemic uh, problem, and it's about the way we treat the world as a whole. Um, 
so certainly for the campaign, we're, we're providing answers and we're providing examples of uh, groups uh, that are actively, you know, combating the problem. But the real honest answer is that it's more complex than that. There needs to be a change in culture about how we, um, how we exist on this planet. Um, and that's a much wider conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated can of worms. And I was about to, I'm still going to go really specific before we broaden it out to world culture. But um, what do you think about national parks and the way that they are managed and the biodiversity, etc.? Well, I guess national parks uh, comes with this kind of uh, um, assumption that the biodiversity in them, because they're, you know, they're sort of uh, uh, safeguarded. Uh, it comes with this assumption that, uh, that they're uh, areas of incredible uh, natural biodiversity. Uh, but of course, like large uh, proportions of them are just cropped within an inch of their life by the sheep. That are all over them. Like they're still places of uh, agri- industrial agriculture. Um, the other issue with national parks, uh, there's there's a race issue and a, and a class issue here. Like ninety three percent of visits to national parks uh, last year uh, were made by car. Staggering, uh, like statistic. Only half of families in England have access to a car. So because these places are so far uh, removed from um, urban populations, are they really benefiting uh, the the English public or are they just benefiting those that are able to afford an overnight stay in a bed and breakfast or uh, like have access to a vehicle that will take them there? Country bus services have been slashed. Like, you know, this old idea in the kinder trespass where they all just took the bus to uh, the peak district, uh, that bus service doesn't exist anymore. So how are people actually going to physically access uh, the nature that is sort of open to us? The other issue is 1% of visits to um, national parks last year were uh, from people from uh, black and people of color communities. Um, there's like eight to nine percent of uh, the English population uh, kind of identifiers or I are identified as uh, BAME, you know, black and Asian minority ethnic. So where are the other eight percent of people? You know, why why are they not represented? And crucial to this idea of access to nature is that we're not seeking equality because we're we're too far gone for that. We're looking for parity. And parity requires that those that are most marginalized from the countryside are actively encouraged and actively sought out um, uh, and sort of um, facilitated towards accessing nature. Because there's a culture that um, effectively, you know, going for a nice walk uh, in the countryside, every picture you see of it, it's just affluent, middle class, perfect teeth, smiling white people. Um, and they're they're not the only group that need access to nature. You know, there's others kind of thing. So, so national parks are beautiful, but um, national parks came about from the 1949 National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act. Everyone calls it the National Parks Act because the access to the countryside part of it 
just got quashed by the landowners of the House of Lords. Like, that's just very simply what happened, you know. And in, in the 70s, this kind of theory was called honeypotting. Like, uh, you know, what you wanted to do was designate kind of little cattle pens uh, of nature for people, uh, for the general riffraff uh, to go and visit, uh, so that the rest of uh, nature remained unblemished by public access. So you honeypot it so that all the flies swarm around that one area. Um, and of course, what that does is just put an inordinate amount of pressure on the erosion of the paths, uh, the litter that is left there. Uh, and the science says the more litter that you see, the more likely you are to leave litter yourself kind of thing. So you get these places that are held up as evidence of how poorly the public treat nature. But no one talks about the infrastructure uh, and the history behind it that we've been herded to these places simply because, you know, in lockdown, there was this furore about Bournemouth Beach. Everyone, you know, the moment lockdown was lifted, everyone, you know, every Joe and his cat went um, to Bournemouth Beach to just to dump a load of plastic on it kind of thing. But all the rivers and all the woodlands that they would have driven by uh, to get to that one uh, area that you're allowed to be, uh, like, why not, you know, why not open up some of those woodlands or the rivers so that people can actually go for a swim uh, within 20 minutes of their home rather than having to drive two hours to go to uh, uh, what's called in, in legal uh, terms the foreshore. You know, we have rights of access to the foreshore because it's owned by the Crown. The beach is something that, you know, if people put fences up around the beaches now, there would be a national outcry. But because people put fences up around the rivers and the lakes and the, uh, you know, and the woodlands two to 500 years ago, we've forgotten that that was something that we did have access to. So we accept it. We've been born into uh, that culture. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, uh, what, well, what I'm trying to get at is most people do stick to the footpaths and most people do stick to the national parks and they are aware that these are the only places they're allowed to tread. There are others of us who go wherever we like consciously, which obviously does avoid people's gardens, it does avoid triple SIs, etc, etc. Um, do you advocate people breaking the law and walking across private land? Oh, well, my next book, which is sort of less of an album and more of a LP kind of thing, like a sort of little stopgap in between the next big book, um, is actively encouraging people to do it. Uh, like it's called The Trespasser's Companion, and with any luck, it will be out for the 90th anniversary of the Kinder Trespass um, on the 24th of April. Uh, and it's actively encouraging people uh, to trespass. But crucially, it's kind of all right 
for you and me. We're both kind of like pretty chunky uh, white men. Uh, like we are, we're the the arm of the law is least threatening to people like you and me. But there's queer people uh, um, in the countryside that one don't feel welcome, and two, if they were to trespass, the the notion of how the law would treat them uh, is to st- statistically. Uh, you know, far more violently and far more threatening than how it would treat us. Um, the same applies to BIPOC people. Uh, you know, if you're uh, like Benjamin Zephaniah, the country's greatest poet, in or, or one of the, I should say, one of the country's greatest poets. Um, I, I, it's a, a little story I put in my book, but uh, he went for a jog round his mate's land in Essex. And there was a police helicopter called because there were two black men running away from something. And they're like, bloody hell, they're jogging. Like, and, and it's because, uh, one, it's not a common sight in the English countryside uh, to see uh, people of colour taking exercise. Like uh, in England, urban and black are kind of synonymous. For no good, you know, like... These people are second, third generation, uh, you know, from uh, uh, from Africa or the Caribbean kind of thing. There, there is an outdoor uh, culture uh, in 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 the heritage of these places. But you come to England and you get just defined as urban. Uh, so white people in the countryside feel an instant threat when they see uh, people of color, and people of color experience that feeling uh come back at them um so uh so it's it's easy for us to go ahead and trespass but crucially what this next book is uh talking about is how to turn your trespass into a direct action so that the real effect is not you stepping over the line and having a nice day doing some wild swimming but actually how to turn that uh trespass into a, a a sort of a wider movement that actually abolishes the exclusivity of that line in the first place kind of thing it's vital for people that have the privilege uh to work towards creating a system uh that encourages those that don't have the privilege to take their mental health benefits as well yeah and i mean obviously you're talking very eloquently about the difference in body type gender, race, sexuality, etc., and how that would affect um, attitude, but also prosecution. What are the ramifications and implications? And what, what could literally happen for somebody being tried for civil trespass? Oh, well, you'll, you'll not go to court. Um, you know, that's a miscommunication. Like, you know, the signs that say trespassers will be prosecuted are just barefaced lies. Uh, the people that paint them should be taken to prison uh, for lying on an industrial scale. Um, you are, uh, what's going to happen if you're caught trespassing, uh, you will be met with, uh, a, a sort of somewhere in between a degree of patronizing to outright aggressive hostility. Uh, you'll be, uh, told, uh, very paternalistically that, uh, you know, what do you think you're doing? This is private property. Uh, um, uh, if you resist that, uh, and then you'll be asked to leave. And if you leave, then that's it. That is literally all they can do to you. If you refuse to leave, uh, which is 
I don't know anyone that has, I've never done it, uh, then they're going to call the police on you. But of course, the police don't give one flying fig uh, about trespassing. They've got stuff on their hands. So the police might not even turn up. If you happen to be um, trespassing like XR did on uh, a politician's land, Richard Drax, whose uh, family were integral in the kind of mechanization of the slave trade, um, and whose land is still, you know, was basically paid for by uh, uh, the Eng- by the English taxpayer uh, compensating slave owners for the removal of their property. Um, you know, so we bought Richard Drax's uh, 12,000 acres uh, down in South Dorset for him uh, as a kind of uh, pat on the back for saying thanks for not being a slaver anymore. Um, if you're caught on that, like XR were, then uh, you're likely to get, uh, as they did, a police helicopter and several vans out uh, because this is the way power works. You know, Richard Drax is a, a, a very rich uh, MP. And uh, if he picks up the phone to the police commissioner, then the police commissioner is going to do exactly as uh, Richard Drax requests. But really, if the police come, uh, and then um, then things get more serious because uh, if you resist uh, being removed from the land by the police, then you can be done for a breach of the peace, which then could mean uh, definitely uh, a court summons and uh, maybe some time behind bars. So it's highly advisable not to bother. Um, but then there's other things. If you're if you're caught uh, engaged in aggravated trespass, which uh, is is actually quite hard to define, uh, but really that was from 1994. It was there to stop the hunt saboteurs uh, and the ravers. Um, so basically, if you're setting up a sound system on someone else's land, then you can be arrested. And the sound system can be, uh, you know, confiscated. But um, but generally, just going for a swim in a river, you're going to get an irate fisherman saying they're going to call the river bailiff. Then the river bailiff will come along, and they'll get very red faced at you, and they'll probably use all all manner of uh, horrible language and and actually be quite physically threatening uh, in times. Uh, but there's nothing they can do to you if you just go, all right, <laughs> I'll leave, and then just go back again the next day. You might even get to know them. <laughs> well, yeah, wouldn't that be something? It's it's really interesting the way you talk about it because it it makes me realise how I'm the sort of person who, if I'm asked to leave, I, it doesn't. I just I'll go home and I, I won't think about it again. Um, but for lots of people, that's quite an intimidating prospect. And actually, it might ruin the experience. You know, they can't relax whilst out in nature because they're constantly on edge. I suppose the issue is people don't want to trespass because they don't want to think about the stress of it. It's a really good point. It, it ruins your experience of nature, just the potential of having that kind of uh aggressive interaction when i'm swimming in a river i'm doing it to chill the hell out uh to really relax like i unwind in a river uh and then out of nowhere what the bloody hell do you think you're playing at you know as if the the real key thing about the way that landowners or their representatives uh deal with you uh when they catch you trespassing is not even their fault. It's written into the law. The trespass 
itself, just by stepping one foot over a line, that constitutes damage uh, to the personhood of the landowner. So when, regardless of whether you're, you know, I'm swimming, I'm not even touching uh, the land, but the, the law defines that as harm. And so when gamekeepers come up to you, it's, they're reacting as if you have caused the first, or given the first blow. So actually, I understand why they respond in that way. Um, the problem is that this notion uh, that just by being on the land you're causing harm, in, le- in, in law circles, that's called a legal fiction. But in layman's terms, that's just called a made-up load of crock of shit basically it's like it they they've invented that um in order to sustain this kind of mad myopic uh definition of private property um whose rules were created by uh, an unreformed parliament you know which basically meant parliament uh you know before the early 1800s was um just a cabal of landowners so those laws, there's there's no other way of painting it. Those laws were created for the self-interest of a very few people in society at the direct expense of the majority of people in society, which is the absolute opposite of what a law or a legal system uh, should be about. And just I really, I'm going to like throw in hand grenades at you here for you to hit back at me. Um, isn't Pretty Patel talking about criminalizing any form of trespass? No, she's uh, like, and this this is something that is actually really quite tricky because I was on the um, on the telly the other day, the first time I had to go on telly, uh, like on the politics live show, and the way they're presenting it now because of the this criminalization of trespass bill, which has been wrapped in with like the obliteration of protest bill, uh, you know in a very uh, pretty standard way of what they're going to do. They're going to uh, sort of wrap all of this together so that the protests about it uh, will essentially concentrate more on the freedom of speech and less on the freedom of the travelling community to maintain their travelling way of life. Um, So they're going, almost certainly, they're going to push through a load of... uh, uh, sort of basically human rights violations, uh, but because they've chucked them all together, they're going to probably, you know, compromise on a couple, but because they're compromising on a couple and forcing so many others through, that's the way they get the majority of what they want. Uh, but yeah, this program was kind of like, should we abolish trespass or criminalise it? And it's it's really sort of horrible and difficult to counter to find the argument being uh, warped in that way. And it's not even, we weren't even discussing it. That was like the little ticker tape kind of, um, you know, words that they were rolling underneath uh, the program. Um, Basically what Priti Patel is doing is criminalizing uh, the, basically turning up to land that you don't own, camping on it, if you've turned up there with one or more vehicles. So I live on a boat at the moment, and if I wasn't paying the farmer uh, £30 a week uh, for me to moor on his and her um, field, uh, then 
when Pretty Patel's law gets through, I will be uh, done for cr- the criminal for criminal trespass, which means I could be arrested, uh, and also means they can impound my boat, which is my home. Now, there's the van dwelling community for whom their vehicle is also their home, but there's also people that turn up uh, down the River Wye uh, kayaking with a you know a light tent on their backpack. It's criminalizing them as well. And the truth is, Pretty Patel doesn't really care about the kayaker with a camp with, with a tent on their back. It's just they've had to broaden it uh, the bill to include them, uh, so that the Human Rights Commission don't do them for basically what the point of this bill was in the first place. And we know that because it was in the Conservative Manifesto. And in 2010, there was a letter seeking to outlaw tra- the travelling community. This is something that has been in the marrow of the Conservative Party for a long time. But they've just had to broaden it so that they're not done uh, for a human rights violation of a minority community, which is the travellers. So um, basically, like the, this whole kill the bill campaign, uh, what they've done is uh, chuck a load of stuff into one bill, uh, which the danger is, as I said, you know, lots of stuff will be uh, forgotten about whilst the major stuff is fought over. But what they've also done is create a broad coalition between Sisters Uncut, XR, Black Lives Matter, uh, all of the sort of real radical groups at the moment that are protesting on the streets. So, you know, it's interesting to see how that will work uh, because that coalition has never been more explicit than it is today kind of thing. So how do you see all this playing out? (laughs) I don't know. I don't, oh, I don't know, because I'm supposed to be, I'm like representing the Right to Roam campaign at the moment. So I'm supposed to be dynamic and enthusiastic and positive about the future. But like, if the Conservatives can come to power with Boris Johnson as their, you know, lead dolly, um, I don't know, mate. I don't know. Like, everything... Effectively, they, uh, you know, the the cynic might suggest that the Conservatives uh, have criminalised protest because they know that Brexit and COVID is going to bring about a kind of social upheaval, the like of which we haven't seen in a long time, uh, that is going to affect people's lives in such a way that they're in this desperate corner that all they can do is take to the streets and protest. But by criminalising their right to do that, uh, they're basically allowing the measures that they're going to take to be passed through unopposed. Um, but that's only what a cynic might say. Someone less sceptical uh, might say, oh, maybe the world will just wake up and, uh, you know, <laughs> realise that uh, net zero carbon uh, is essential rather than just this sort of uh, utopian uh, woolly-headed ideal, or uh, I don't know. It's a really hard question to answer. I think it is. It's never been more incumbent on those with privilege uh, and those whose lifestyles are going to be less uh, directly affected by the bill and by the actions of the Conservative government. It's never been more incumbent on them to step up and use their privilege to. Um, uh, to, to stop what's happening. 
and also uh, having been cynical, like just a sceptical look at history will uh, show you that protest just bog standard does work. Uh, and, and people, it's very much in the interest of the prevailing orthodox power uh, to tell you that protest is futile. Uh, but you look at any human right that we enjoy now, and that's being demanded off the state rather than freely given, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's it's not, I'm, I, I'm not putting my faith in the government, I'm putting my faith in the people, because uh, I really do think there is power there. I'm assuming and asking that once this all gets passed, that you will still, you know, take to the streets and march and do the things that you do. Oh, if wild camping, I mean, when wild camping um, is criminalized, we'll take a film crew out uh, to somewhere, to some Duke's land, and we'll wild camp for sure. Because, uh, you know, this this Trespassers Companion book is not just a, an urge uh, to people for people to trespass as direct action. It's also making explicit what our responsibilities to the ecology of an area are. Uh, and it's using the Scottish outlets. It's telling people the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. It's telling people how to light a fire uh, uh, and control it uh, so that it's not a danger. Uh, it's telling people about citizen science and how to monitor invasive species and, you know, basically all the benefits of having more eyes and boots on the ground. Um but I can be sure that me and my pals can go and wild camp uh, somewhere and leave absolute zero footprint, except, of course, uh, the uh, you know five-minute film that we'll make of it. Um, and um, we'll have to see if we go to prison for that because, um, because you know, if we do, that's also... Uh, I mean, that's a real bugger. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to get someone to rent my boat or something. But... Um, it's also a very, I mean, that would help us uh, from a campaign perspective as well. Um, so basically, if, if people are restricting your rights, it's, um, it's David Graeber's principle of direct action is simply to live as if you're free already. Uh, and if they've criminalized wild camping, um, I'm going to go wild camping because because um, I do so respectfully and responsibly uh, and I believe that more people will do so respectfully and responsibly uh, if they have the experience of doing it and if if there's the right sort of education and teaching uh, behind it. So, yeah, we'll be right out there. <laughs> My next question was going to be, are you willing to go to prison for this? But you've answered that perfectly. It's obviously a yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, prison, I went, I went for a interview years ago because uh, I used to edit a sort of arts magazine that we set up at university and so I went there was like a job opportunity that I wanted to do up in Pentonville prison I was living in London at the time um, and you could go and be the editor for their the, like the inmates magazine and just going there for the interview like the the sound of the the just the repetitive sound of doors being locked behind you as you go further and further in like i don't think prison prison is a cushy number um but then also like activism shouldn't be just this kind of fair weather lifestyle brand 
like there should be if 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 stuff is worth fighting for it's also worth um losing your liberty for i don't know i don't want to make any commitment i'll probably coward out of it by uh no i don't know if i will i'm not sure i've got mates that counsel either end of it you know it's like be be wise about it you're you know you can do a lot more on the on the outside but then also mates that are like you know what i mean why why have we become so watered down that the idea of uh, going to prison uh, scares you? You know, Spanish revolutionaries in the 30s would lose their lives for what they believed in. And if I really believe uh, that the public should have access to nature, if I really believe it, which I think I really do, um, then why are you holding out? Why, you know, you, you can't just be half in it kind of thing. I, I have to say I, I agree with that and personally. I mean, I get I get eyes rolled at me quite regularly, but you know, this is a different conversation for a different day, but we're a purposeless people these days, I think, and we don't have anything to fight for, which is half of our problem. You know, actually we've got everything we need and more. And actually a little bit of I mean, it's just being a good ancestor. Like we're ruining the world slowly and actually standing up and saying no. I'm not going to be one of those people. The amount of purpose you can find in that and what that does to your mental health on a personal and selfish level, as well as a societal level, is vast. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think it's possible to be half in. I totally agree. For you know the benefit of a podcast, I've just been nodding my head up and down. Like, <laughs> um, I, I, it's a really good it's a really really good point that you make there as well this idea I, I mean there has to be another word between uh selfish and uh selfless like to do something uh that makes you feel better about stuff i think is a more practical way of making change in the world you know if you're always in a hair shirt and tearing your uh beard out uh, just to show how uh hard this all is for you then i don't think that's you know, the way that co-op, uh, the cooperative supermarket, you know, things that are ethically sound need to also function well. And they need to, uh, you know, they need to survive, basically. Uh, and to rely on people being miserable in camps. There's Piers Morgan going on about XR. All they're doing is like dancing in the streets. No one... No one from the right wing understands that to stand out there in the streets in, is to get cold and bored. And actually, music is something that just generates solidarity, not least body heat, <laughs> to keep you going. So music is a tactic. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I have found before I wrote the book and before uh, this Right to Roam campaign, and, and all we're really doing is channeling other people's expertise, uh, you know, and focusing it like a magnifying glass on, on one area. Um, but before then, yeah, I, I was feeling like, what the fuck am I doing in this sort of mess of the world kind of thing? And to actually chip away at your little coalface, um, gives you just takes away that sense of nihilism that is actually kind of soul rot um makes you feel like you can't you're not doing anything or 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 even worse just to be like well what's what's the point of bothering it's so big and it's so abstract i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stop climate change 
But um, to find something that is your passion is really all you can do, but it does benefit you because it makes you, it, it allows you to get up in the morning with a purpose uh, that isn't just make money for a boss uh, and consume, you know, which is, which is really what we're supposed to do. I think, yeah, and I think it also it helps a lot with the kind of ego death, like this understanding that it's not about nihilism, it's not about solely changing the world and being remembered for it. It's just, you know, adding more to the collective than you take away. And just, it's not about me, but it's allowed to be about me sometimes in my own little corner. It's the, you know, again, it's community and feeling like you're part of it and part of something. Is some, I don't feel like I'm part of a community where I live. I know I've just moved to Suffolk. I don't know anybody apart from my mum and my wife and my daughter. You know, I, as soon as you talked about that, that boating community, sitting around the fire, playing music, you know, the amount of like just the positives you take from that, mm. I envy that. I've, well, I feel very blessed for it, to be fair. In, in London as well, you know, I lived in a tower block uh of uh 50 different families kind of thing and basically uh because there were two lifts one served the odd floor and one served the even floor i just didn't know like 10 years living there i didn't know the people that used the other lift <laughs> just didn't just didn't know them but the thing is there is there is in the commons this this old uh you know the book goes into much greater detail and the next one goes into further detail about it but there is this sense at the moment uh, in the rewilding community uh, that um, uh, that nature will only thrive uh, in in the absence of humans, uh, and I, I, I firmly believe the opposite of that. That like nature and community are intertwined by accessing nature by joining a wild swimming group. You've you've accessed community, but also to generate community action to care for nature. Uh, is is you know in from the small to the large ways you know from litter picking groups right up to you know water pollution monitoring right up to campaigning or, or defending woodland um, those the, that nature and community are basically one and the same thing and they certainly were on the commons you know where people were managing resources and accessing. Uh, you know, the sort of healthcare that they needed um, within rules and regulations that were set by the community for nature. Um, and I, I know that there's ecologists out there that really disagree with that, that point to, you know, the damage that the public do, the litter and that kind of thing. But if you're really talking about community engagement with nature, you're talking about educating people as to what the impacts are. You know, a really a really good example is um, the outdoor swimming. I think they're called the out. It's a website called the Outdoor Swimmers Guide or, or, or something like that. And they have like a, a list of bullet points, pretty comprehensive bullet points of uh, how to swim safely uh, for yourself and for the ecology. And you read them, and all of a sudden you're learning about when caddisfly larvae hatch. Um, you're learning about where uh, fish spawn. You're learning about the fact that there's bloody snakes in this river and all of that kind of thing. Uh, like by accessing nature 
And by doing it responsibly, you're also learning about its just basically its its detail, its complexities, which are nothing short of magic and fascinating. If we look at England specifically, which is lots of what we've talked about, that it's depleted. It's a degraded landscape. Most of what was has gone. I think that's you know that's just a cold hard fact. We need to integrate ourselves with nature in order to look after it as we help it to recover. But can you say honestly that let's take somewhere like the rainforests of Guyana, which, you know, there are vast swathes of that which are untouched by humans. Do we need humans to be involved in that rainforest and to look after that rainforest? Or can we just leave that be? Well, were there not indigenous tribes in Guyana? Touche. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm asking, but like... Well, uh, there, no, there are. There are, definitely. So, uh, like, 100%, uh, the operation of tourism uh, and, and its kind of colonial parallels kind of thing, the, the operations of setting up, like, a kiosk to serve you ice cream as you go into the, uh, you know, Guyana rainforest kind of thing, uh, I don't think that uh, is has any place. Um, I think certainly... Uh, sort of dropping into an ecology and treating it like a sort of tourist spot. Basically, if you're rich enough to be able to go on a two-week, you know, tour of Guyana and stuff, if that is managed by the indigenous people, by the people that have lived in harmony and sustainably uh, within that ecology for time immemorial, if that money goes to them, if the power of how to operate that goes towards them, if their elders are respected and listened to, the people that hold the information about the rainforest, um, then why on earth, uh, you know, how can we tell them that they're not allowed to be in their home? I mean, but the thing is, I don't also, uh, there's a certain amount of romanticization about indigenous communities that I understand because they've been so thoroughly marginalized and, uh, you know, oppressed, certainly by rainforest deforestation and, and all of that kind of thing i don't think that indigenous communities are much different to uh the communities that lived in england uh on the land uh you know before enclosure i d- there's a certain amount of orientalism uh that applies you know that is sort of linked to that kind of um middle class earth hippie kind of uh white english kind of uh affluent kind of thing so there's loads of festivals that are set up where you know they just sort of fly a a, a tribal leader over and and like that basically it's it there is an exoticism to it uh i just think we're all humans and we will do uh we will largely follow the culture that is uh set up so um whether you're english or amerindian if the culture is uh don't just respect nature, but goddamn point blank revere it kind of thing. Uh, And I'm not saying worship it necessarily, but realize that a tree is more than just a pole of wood. It's a kind of cathedral or a city block of, uh, you know, moths and uh, just life kind of thing. Realize what it's doing for the world. Consider what you're doing for the world (laughs) and ask yourself the start question, you know, which is doing more, <laughs> then um, then I think that humans, if there is a culture that uh, uh, 
that the large swathe of society will revere nature, uh, then stuff like litter, I think, withers on the vine. It just it, it just ceases to be a problem. Um, and I don't think uh, Amerindian communities are immune from, uh, you know, neoliberal ideologies and, uh, you know, littering. I, I don't think that uh, being indigenous uh, sort of means that you've never littered kind of thing. I think it's actually wound into way more complex social ties. But I do believe that societies uh, can create cultures uh, that can be beneficial or uh, harmful to the environment. And we're living in one that is harmful. <laughs> so for people like me, I guess, well, you know, for normal people, everyday people who want to do something to make a difference to the world that they live in, who've listened to this and thought, oh, my God, I didn't know a lot of that. What do they do? Well, first of all, I would say with bias uh, is uh, sign up to writetorome.org.uk. Uh, because next year will be the year of trespass. Um, we'll be asking people to go out into their local areas, uh, not just to trespass, but to take pictures of it, put up just like our XR action on the, the 24th of April of this year, put up signs over the uh, no trespasses or private keep out signs kind of thing uh, that just say everybody welcome. Uh, take photos of them, uh, you know, join the Twitter debate of that. Um, and in, in and of itself, that's that's not going to change the way, but it's our job to manage that uh, kind of uh, groundswell of evidence of people wanting to access nature. Um, it will be our responsibility to take those trespasses and put them in front of uh, people in powerful positions to lobby the Green Party and the Labour Party to put right to Rome in their manifestos, uh, to uh, to reach out to landowners and say, look, this is why uh, a greater public access will not only cause no danger or damage to your livestock or crops, but actually uh, create a much better uh, community spirit. With the, really will raise farmers and landowners to uh, the position they deserve in society, which is akin to doctors and nurses. You know, they are the nurses of our earth kind of thing um to uh, like our job is to obliterate this kind of uh uh lazy argument that um uh that we have a problem uh with farmers and landowners like uh you know this this sort of uh, argument that this is just class warfare that you just want to lop the heads off the aristocracy i don't think about the aristocracy they don't spend like they're not on my mind uh they are uh the nominal excluders of the general public from the countryside but to be honest they can still own their land um i don't care who owns the river i'm swimming in i just care that it's not seen as an immoral act that i should want to uh swim in a river rather than pay four pounds fifty to go and swim in a chlorinated pool you know, it just seems bonkers. As simple and as base as it might sound, uh, sign up to our website because we want people involved. This has to be a people's uh, movement. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we'll we'll sort of ask uh, favours of you <laughs> as we go along. You know, we'll ask you to do stuff.
there's been lots of like negatives to this conversation and lots of kind of sadness and despair but equally i think it's hopeful i think that the power is with us it's all possible um i think we just have to care Absolutely. But again, that's our job to make people care, to create messaging that really uh, resonates with people. And the book was just the first step towards that. We've got lots more planned. Um, so, yeah, like uh, I, I think it is positive. And also uh, there are rumblings from within Parliament that, uh, that, that people are starting to look at public access to nature simply because it's costing the public purse so much not to have it. So that's an argument that we couldn't even hope to bring forward that, you know, the money men are thinking, well, there may be some benefit here. Ace, right. Well, I always ask everybody two questions. So I'm going to do the same for you. First question is, what scares you? Apathy, spiders, uh, loneliness. Is that going to be the title of your third book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A Life in Fear by Nick Hayes. <laughs> um, what brings you hope? Empathy. Um, my friends. Like the people I meet. Like just like people, basically. I think people are really brilliant. Uh I always bang on about it, but uh, when I was in London, I used to quite regularly go to uh, uh, to the Haringey Girls' School to do some teaching, just basically because a mate of mine taught there and could get us, you know, 150 quid to go in and teach art or whatever. But the young women I met there, like Sudanese, Turkish, uh, English, uh, just... just a, it's a new... It, it's a new type of confidence that is fully aware of the patriarchy and fully aware of uh racist white supremacist uh you know oppression but also somehow just doesn't give one fuck and is going right ahead to do what they're going to do anyway and i would always come out i i always come out of teaching really tired because it's quite draining because you've got you're the focus of the whole day or whatever but I used to come out of those sessions with like a skip in my step, just thinking like, well, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> it's going to be okay. These young women uh, are aware of oppression. They just don't, <laughs> they just don't recognize it. It just doesn't like they're you know. So what, yeah, that I think that that's what gives me hope. Uh, but then that's such a cop out, isn't it? Like, oh, the children are our future. They'll sort it kind of thing. I think it's my friends. I think gen just bog standard, genuinely speaking, I think chatting to uh, the people that I love uh, just makes me realize there's so many good things going on out there and there's so many good attitudes and that this old British empire and everything that it sort of stood for uh, is already dead. It's just taking time to fall off its throne, basically. And that's why... Charles Moore and Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson are kicking and screaming so loud, basically. But um, I think already the blood, uh, you know, has been cut off from the brain. Uh, so it's not much longer now. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, overall a nice positive way to end. 
<laughs> the blood has been cut off from the brain. <laughs> cool. Right. We'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate uh, being on. And it was really nice to chat, actually. Thanks for listening. For more information, follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Kate Bullivan and Alex Hall. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.